Are you ready to learn? Because my super experienced guests are ready to share some really valuable information. Make sure and listen all the way to the end to get help and support. So let's start with the best audio experience. Hello everyone and welcome to our show. Today we discuss about promoting your ideas, your projects, startups, anything, anything. And I'm excited to discuss this topic with Ben Narasin. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, big pleasure. Um, I check out your profile. You have extended experience about this topic. So I'm excited about that. I have my personal interest uh, to find investors. I, I know some uh, clients who are looking for investors. So yeah, this topic is uh, yeah, interesting for us. Uh, before we start, just tell more about your experience, background, and why you decided to uh, choose this topic sure and i guess the the banner says seo tools and resources to grow your search traffic but what we're really going to talk about is how to pitch your startup to raise money so yeah. i my background i spent 25 years as an entrepreneur i took my last company public in the bubble uh one of the very first you know sort of web businesses i started in 93 took it public in 99 i never raised venture capital nobody helped me figure out how to pitch Uh, but I was able to take the company private. It was a great outcome. That was sort of on the East Coast. That was in New York City. And then I moved West. I got to California about 18 years ago. And I saw a large gap in the market between angel investing and venture investing. Uh, so in 2007, I started what was one of the first three institutional seed investment practices where I invested in smart people with great ideas that they just needed a modest amount of money, relatively speaking, maybe a million dollars to prove or disprove. And then if that was done successfully, you could go on to raise their next round of capital, which was at the time a Series A. So mm -hmm. I did that exclusively for eight years. I had invested about 80 companies. Uh, in the eighth year, I had one of those companies go public for about a $5 billion market cap. And it was the largest tech IPO of the last decade at the time. Tells you something about how the world has changed. And I had another mm -hmm. company raise money at a $5 billion valuation as a private company. Mm -hmm. So... And this is a key element to sort of why you might listen to what I have to say. During the eight years of being a seed investor, I had spent a lot of time getting to know VCs. I'd gotten to know well over 300 VCs at the top 15 venture firms because I needed to know who to take my entrepreneurs to and who could be a good board member and who could be helpful. And I needed to understand what they were looking for because my view is as a seed investor, you want to find companies that can raise a series A later. So after eight years, some of those venture firms came to call and I ended up being a traditional venture capitalist for about six years. And then I spun out of NEA, New Enterprise Associates, historically the largest venture firm in the world, about a year ago to start my own freestanding seed fund, uh, uh, which I run with uh, one other person, Taylor Oliver. And we are now a year in, as I mentioned, and have invested in about 10 companies, of which two have already gone on to raise their Series A's. So one of my key value propositions is I will help you raise your series A if I think you're ready when the time comes mm -hmm. get you to the right people at the right time. So, you know, I, I, I spend hours with my entrepreneurs working on their decks to make sure they're as absolutely optimal as possible. I've been, I see 3000 pitches a year. I've been in hundreds of partner meetings. You know, mm -hmm. I pretty much help entrepreneurs optimized to be the most effective with their time and presentation to give them the best chance of success when it comes time to pitch. 
Mm-hmm. Love it. Yeah, extended experience. Okay, uh, let me share um, the story of my friend. Um, uh, he's uh, from Ukraine. Yeah, me too. And uh, he uh, he had a business in Ukraine in uh, Kharkiv. It's close to Russian body, uh, border and, you know, uh, factory. And uh, uh, this uh, business covers uh, 95% of all Ukrainian market. Uh, um, yeah, a lot of uh, charge station for electric vehicles, you know, yeah, like uh, I don't remember exactly the number, it's like a thousand charge stations, a lot of them, and uh, his revenue uh, was around 300 million dollars, uh, business value like uh, around 90 million dollars, yeah, good money, but when the war started, uh, he lost this business. Uh, he, he has it, by the way, but it's hard to handle the business, and uh, right now, he claims that uh, he can uh, compete with uh, uh, American companies in the U.S. to create this business from scratch because he has technologies, skills, he, know, he knows how to do it. Uh, can you tell how to help such businessmen who uh, uh, has skills, who has uh, technologies, who knows how to uh, make things happen uh, because he... Uh, uh, he, uh, his business uh, handles some process in Europe, uh, in Ukraine a lot. And right now he's looking for a way to find investors uh, for American markets. Can you help with that? Okay, so I'm going to sort of play back what I heard from you. You have a friend who has built a successful, sounds like EV charging station business. Yes, in Ukraine, yes. Exactly. covers 95% of the market that thinks he can compete effectively in the United States. And what's the best way to get investors to help him do that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the first thing I would point out is that technology is not enough to win. You know, mm-hmm. you wake up every morning uh, with oxygen or you can't compete as an individual human and you wake up every morning with great technology. You can't compete as a business. The mm-hmm. question is, are you going to have everything that's needed to get all the way there? So, you know, as an example, in EV charging, there are multiple entrenched players already live in the United States. ChargePoint, EVgo where they already have infrastructure and installed locations, they have relationships, they have production capacity. So, you know, it doesn't, you know, I think he's going to have to be able to tell a very clear story that is more than just the technology. Now, maybe if the technology is materially better, like 10x better, that Mm -hmm. helps. But, you know, there's a long history of better technology not winning. There's, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like I always say, Betamax wasn't as good as VHS. Sorry, Betamax was better than VHS. These were both cassettes for movies, but VHS won apparently because they had a better infrastructure and a set of relationships. So the lesser quality technology won in the market because they had better distribution and partnerships. So, you know, the better tech isn't enough. He's going to have to show how he's going to win in a competitive landscape. And by the way, it is really hard to get funded against existing competitors that seem to be doing just fine. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, I don't fund that category, but, you know, my first question would be, why isn't ChargePoint good enough? I mean, they're everywhere. Mm -hmm. Literally, they just opened a new town center across the street from me. They're going to have a grand opening for the library tomorrow. I walked over and there's four ChargePoint chargers. You know, Mm -hmm. so why, why is he able to break through the existing relationships with construction folks and People are specking all this out. And so it's a combination of tech and team and go to market and pricing and business model and CAC to LTV and all of that. So, you know, it's um, it doesn't it is never an obvious answer to any of this stuff. 
Mm-hmm. But you know, it, it God is in the details. You gotta, you gotta sort of, you gotta have it all stitched together. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, yeah. in fairness, he probably at least people have a lot of experience in the category, so they could judge relatively quickly their belief in his chance of success. Venture folks tend to believe a lot in pattern recognition, which can have positive and negative connotations. But like when you've seen what it takes to prove something in a market, then you see someone else trying to do the same thing. At least you have a point of view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, got it. Yeah, interesting. Uh, can you tell uh, when uh, any project is ready to start pitching uh, to search for investors? Uh, because uh, I think uh, when we have the early stages, it's not good time. Yeah, because uh, it's hard to uh, convince uh, investors to invest money. Can you tell how to find this benchmark that it's ready? Uh, we can convince, we can provide some good pitch and uh, yeah, to get sure, to- sure. Well, I mean. So if you think about it, first of all, there's lots of sources of capital and in venture, first of all, you got to think about is your is your business venture viable? So mm-hmm. I have a rule I made up. I call the Ben rule just because, you know, I'm an egotist and I decided to put my name on something, which is take your business and think about if everything goes right at the end, if you've met all your personal goals, what is that business worth? What is it sell for? Because remember, investors only make money and only care ultimately about businesses that get liquid, which means you either have to get public, you have to be a public company or sell. Mm-hmm. They, you know, it's the we investors manage money for other people and they manage it with a time horizon. A venture fund is typically a 10-year vehicle, often with two one-year extensions. So 10 to 12-year vehicle. At the end of that time, the goal is to have returned all the money and a whole lot more. So everybody has to get liquid. So think about what your ultimate point of liquidity could be. Divide that number by five. The reason for that is that most venture firms will buy 20% of your company. Mm-hmm. Now, if that number, if one fifth of your ultimate outcome is not at least one half of the size of the fund you're pitching, you're wasting your time, mm-hmm. right? Because they need to make investments <coughs> which they believe can be material to the fund. So now having said all that, you know, there's lots of different stages of investment. So as an example, there are now people that do what is called, what I used to be doing, which was called seed, is now called pre-seed. Pre-seed is basically smart people with great ideas and huge markets ahead of them that pitch those ideas, basically just a set of PowerPoint slides and raise money pre-market, pre-product, right? It's like, I'm Ben Narison. I've been a VC for whatever period of time. And I believe there's a huge opportunity in creating uh, a marketplace online for debt for private companies so that if you're venture backed, you can get individuals in a peer to peer environment to give you debt plus mm-hmm. one. So basically, venture debt meets angel list. Okay, interesting, Ben. Um, how much do you need to raise for that? Well, I need a million dollars or half a million dollars to build a prototype launch it and get my first, you know, $3 million worth of loans done. Okay. Somebody could fund that. That's traditionally a pre-seed investor. Seed investors, which is where I mainly spend my time are, and by the way, the pre-seed rounds are probably half a million to a million and a half, maybe $2 million. Seed is now more of a two to $6 million game. And it is after you've launched usually and have traction. Today, I think to raise a seed round, you probably need 400,000 to a million of ARR. Now, that's not always the case, but it's sort of the sweet spot. 
There's always going to be exceptions on either side. Now, the next level is, so let's say, you know, you raised the half a million to a million, you built the product out, you got to 800,000 of ARR. You come to a guy like me, I put in one, two or $3 million. It's called $3 million. And you go from $800,000. I'm going to want to see you get to between 2.2 and $4 million of ARR. On that or more, you can probably raise a successful Series A. And a Series A these days could be from a low end of maybe six to a high end of 29. We just raised a $29 million Series A. I've seen higher. The more revenue you have, the better. There is no number that's too big. There are plenty of numbers that are too small. So, you know, you're going to have to first precede you're selling a concept. Seed, you're selling early proof, basically thesis proof plus traction. Series A, it's show me the money. You know, they're going to want to... Mm-hmm. Material growth, revenue growth. And by the way, it's not just the 2.2 to 4 million of revenue. It's a very strong growth curve going forward. So I think mm-hmm. those are, I mean, look, there's always variations. I just raised $29 million for a company that had 600,000 of revenue. So, you mm-hmm. know, the one of the founders was just an absolute superstar. He had a public company under his belt, grew a company from zero to $250 million in three years. So, you know, people pay a lot for those sort of people when they think they can do it again. I love it. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Uh, can you tell about personalization? For example, uh, how uh, to uh, reach out uh, to investors? Uh, and uh, because uh, you mentioned that you check out many uh, presentations, uh, many pitches. Uh, uh, and uh, how to uh, differentiate your pitch from the rest, from uh, others? And yeah, uh, yeah, to show, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, this is a hard one. I get asked this a lot. So I actually launched a site, www pitch, P-I-T-C-H, dash Ben.com. I'll put it in the chat. I did that specifically because people so often complain about how hard it is to reach tier one Silicon Valley venture capitalists. And I wanted Mm -hmm. to stop that from being a problem. So like today I listened to probably 10 pitches on pitch Ben and it was Europe and I get a lot from Africa. It's all over the place. So that's one way. But I'll be honest, I thought after I did it, a lot of other people would do it. Nobody does it. So, you know, we'll see. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, the guidance you're always going to get is the best thing you can have is a warm introduction. So you go through your LinkedIn's, you go through your Facebooks, you try to figure out, you look at people's Twitter feeds, you know, you follow them, you figure out what they're doing. You try to find somebody they know that knows you. Best introductions of all are an entrepreneur they've funded. When one of my founders brings me another founder, I'm always going to take that conversation. Okay. The next level, lawyers, accountants, service industry. Yeah. You know, it's okay. I'll listen, but the filter is lower. So, you know, Mm -hmm. and then other investors, that's sort of tricky, but you would prefer to go in with a warm intro. If you can't get a warm intro, different people act differently. I read 100% of my emails and I read 100% of my LinkedIn's, Mm -hmm. but if I'm not interested, I don't respond. I, I'm 400 mm-hmm. emails behind by the time I wake up every morning. My lack of response, if anybody does pitch me by LinkedIn or email or Twitter, I also read all my DMs, doesn't mean I didn't read what you sent me. I read it. I get to inbox zero every day across all three platforms. What it means is I'm not interested. Okay, I don't have time to say no 400 times a day to people that send random pitches that I'm not interested in hearing more about. The next level is to send them the link to www.pitch-ben.com and say, Send me a video pitch, right? 
The next thing is, if that interests me, then we can talk about having a one-on-one -on -one conversation. But different people are different in terms of their willingness to look at stuff over the transom. So sometimes you look for places where maybe there's a pitch competition. That's a useful way to go, you know, where they're judging a bunch of startups. Now with Zoom and StreamYard and all this stuff, there's lots of places where people are showing up that didn't used to show up. So maybe you can get online and here. Okay. So now let's say you found a way to get to them or you're just trying to email them. Here's the critical thing. Be concise and be specific. Mm -hmm. Here is what a pitch should be made up of. Who are you? What are you doing? Who are you doing it for? How are you charging them? How are you doing? Period. Okay. I don't need some rambly, like I just listen to all these pitches. Hi, Ben. I've got a great opportunity for you. You can get on board something really exciting. You can be part of the next and future generation. You know what that was? That was 15 seconds of wasted time. I'm going to do something that changes the world using an app for finance, for SMBs. <laughs> Great. Good to know. You just told me nothing. Here's an effective pitch. I'm Ben Narison. I spent 25 years as an entrepreneur. I built businesses, which I took public in consumer, direct, retail. And I've been told I invented cost per click. I've got very specific domain knowledge in e-commerce, in online advertising. And I am launching an auction website to sell, I don't know, farm equipment. Farm equipment is currently a $300 billion a year industry. There's no technology evangelist doing anything about it. I'm launching that. I need to raise $3 million so that I can get contracts in place with the top 10 buyers of farm equipment. By the way, there's 10,000 buyers of farm equipment. I have conversations with six. I'm not live yet. I will charge them nothing to be on the platform, but I will take 15% of sales. Average piece of farm equipment sells for $200,000. I believe I can sell $200 million of the farm equipment a year after two years and therefore make blah, 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 blah. Specific, specific, specific. Stay away from generalities. I don't want 10,000 feet. I don't want 1,000 feet. Get me down to 10 feet. Who are you? What are you doing? Who are you doing it for? How are you doing it? How are they paying you? And how's the business going? Mm -hmm. uh, Relaunch, launch. You know, we've been doing this for three years. Good. How much revenue? We're making a dollar. Yeah, I don't care. We're making $10 million. Wow, I care. We have a 1% take rate. Oops, I don't care anymore. Because <laughs> $10 million mm -hmm. is not making $10 million is your GMB. So be specific. I gave you a pitch, which I made up off the top of my head, in under a minute that told you what you needed to know if you cared to talk to me again. And that's what you should do. Less is more. Mm -hmm. is not, here's number one rule that I give my entrepreneurs when I'm helping them with their decks. Your job is not to stop when there's nothing left to add. Your job is to stop when there is nothing left to remove. Strip it down to its bare essence and make sure it's specific and tells the story it needs to tell. Mm -hmm. Yeah, valuable. So valuable. Uh, uh, I remember when I watched a movie about uh, Steve Jobs and uh, he took phone and called uh, many investors, you know, asked, uh, do you want to invest uh, to Apple, uh, a new company, will big, big company. Uh, can you tell about technical aspect? Because you mentioned about email, uh, LinkedIn. Uh, do we need to use email and LinkedIn to reach out to investors or we can find Well, I mean, you'd prefer ways? to avoid it. I mean, you'd prefer to get a personal introduction or find a more creative way. Mm -hmm. um, like people use Loom now, that's a little more creative. I mean, try to find a a way to, some people, I'll tell you something that I think is reasonably creative, but I don't care. People will sometimes send me a video pitch 
over mm-hmm. LinkedIn, like a one minute video pitch. Now I respond pitch-ben.com because my system is built for you to give me a live video pitch and for me to give you a live video response. Sorry, an asynchronous video pitch and asynchronous video response. Okay, so I'm just going to point you there. Oh, number one thing, by the way, when you do reach out over LinkedIn, I'd say 90% of it, it's TLDR. Long, you think I'm going to read that? I just told you I woke up every morning 400 emails behind. You think if you send me a 600-word note, I'm going to read it? No, no, absolutely not. I can guarantee you. If maybe, if the note starts with, Ben, it's the President of the United States, which you can see is true from the validation of this email in my system, and I've got 600 words, maybe, but I will probably stop reading it after the first paragraph. I don't care if it's Biden. I don't care who it is. Not interested. If you can't tell me something precisely, I don't want to hear it. Um, there's a, I think it was Einstein that said, if you cannot explain something simply, yeah, you can understand it well enough. Let me tell you one little parable. So NEA, where I used to work, employed a gentleman who was a Nobel Prize winner. I mean, mm-hmm. ridiculously smart, awesome dude, right? So we had funded a company that built one of the first functioning prototypical nuclear fusion plants. And I had helped them with some fundraising. Well, I went down and visited the plant. I came back and I said, wow, that looked cool. But it could have all been made up for all I know. I know nothing about fusion. I don't even know how fusion. This Nobel Prize winner took Mm -hmm. a post-it note. And he drew a sketch and he said, that's how nuclear fusion works. If a guy can explain to me how nuclear fusion works on a post-it note, you can explain to me your business in a minute or it's your problem, not mine. Okay, a lot of people say, oh, you know, it's too complex. Excuse my language, bullshit. Mm-hmm. You haven't thought about it well enough to be able to explain it simply. Okay, figure that out. Now, email or LinkedIn, unfortunately, maybe the only way you can reach people, but you should always try to get the warm intro. You should always find alternative paths. I always tell people, look, try to find a place. It's harder now because not many people go out anymore, but you know they, they're going to be speaking somewhere, right? Like I go to conferences all the time. My, my friends would say, oh, my God, why do you bother? I'm like, what do you mean? So, well, as soon as you get off the stage, there's this line of people that want to talk to you. I'm like, that's why I'm there. I want to hear all their pitches. Now, I want you to be respectful of the people behind you and make the pitch succinct. But I want to hear your pitches. Not everybody's that way. But, you know, you want to find a way to get to those people. And the more creative you are about it, the better. I've had some pretty interesting creative attempts, like somebody... I forget what their pitch was, unfortunately. Like they literally dropped off a single brand new shoe at my office. And the pitch was something around, if you want to understand the pair. Anyway, it was interesting because it was a shoe. So I paid mm-hmm. attention. The pitch didn't make any sense. So I didn't bother to do anything about it. And by the way, it wasn't a shoe in my size. And the pitch didn't say, if you want the other half of the shoe, which you can wear. I mean, I, 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 I will admit, I'm a sucker for helping entrepreneurs. And I'm a sucker for somebody buying me lunch. So when an entrepreneur is like, you know, I'll buy you lunch for blah, blah, blah. I usually like, well, how nice of a lunch. (laughs) (laughs) I will tell you that once an entrepreneur said, I'll buy you lunch uh, wherever you want. You know, if you'll just spend an hour with me. And I was like, okay, Um, But, you know, the place the only place it's easy was next to my office is really expensive. He's like, I don't care. It's fine. It's well worth it. It's, you know, like GLG calls. I get paid a thousand dollars an hour. So for an entrepreneur to spend a hundred fifty bucks on a lunch, it's actually a pretty good deal, I guess. But then he said, "Okay, I'm going to have to fly in. I was like, oh, dude, don't do that. Let's just do a video call like you don't want to. I don't want you to fly here to buy me lunch. I mean, it showed a lot of gumption on his part. But, you know, the more tenacious and hardworking while being respectful you are, the better chance you have. I mean, don't be, you know, the trick 
is you got to be tenacious, but you can't come off as too pushy. You mm-hmm. got to be uh, just on the edge, right? Like you have permission, in my view, as an entrepreneur, to ask anybody anything. Like you're advocating for your company, you have the shield of this bigger opportunity that is your business. But once you tip over from confident into arrogant, or you tip over from tenacious to just a pain in the ass irritant, I'll give you I'll give you one specific example. I won't name the guy or the company, but mm-hmm. no means no in venture pitching. Okay, mm-hmm. it is rare. I try to either pass in a meeting. Or say, I want to spend more time with you. I often say to entrepreneurs, I cannot get to yes in a meeting, in my first meeting. I can either get to no, in which case I'll tell you as soon as I know it's not a fit. Or I can get to, I want to spend more time and we'll keep going until it gets to an answer. But sometimes, it's rare, I get to the no and I say pass. Now, I am a very rare person that will actually tell you with words in a meeting that I'm passing and the answer is no. A lot of people just be nice and then go away and never talk to you again. Okay. And with that, sometimes people keep coming back. And I'm like, I I said, no, (laughs) like it's a pass. Yes, but okay, no, I get it. Sales starts the word no, fundraising does not. When somebody actually says the words, pass, no, I cannot or will not fund you, move on. It's not your job as an entrepreneur to to convert the naysayers. It's your job to find the zealots. You're not selling a new religion. You're selling, well, you might be selling a new religion, but you're not converting people from another religion. Get the people that care about the religion you're selling, get them on board. And when the people say, sorry, I'm a Muslim or I'm a Hindu or I'm whatever, and I'm not interested in Christianity, then move on. Go find somebody that is. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a delicate balance. But remember, you know, if you piss people off, that really doesn't help. And, and generally, VCs don't want to piss off entrepreneurs even when they pass. And that's why they usually don't say they're passing, which I find enormously frustrating topic for another day. But, you know, I wish people would just say what they think, because then that could actually help sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, awesome. Well, well explained. Yeah, love it. Uh, okay, uh, let's talk about, um, for example, some companies or uh, projects have no time to search for investors uh, because they need to develop uh, in a way their products. You know, yeah, competition is fierce. And how to find the right consultant who can help uh, uh, find uh, the right investors because this niche is, you know, we have a lot of fraud, right. you know. Stop. Yeah, you don't. There are no right consultants to find investors. Consultants Mm -hmm. have no place in raising venture capital. Bankers have no place in raising venture capital. Mm -hmm. This is a common miscon. Well, in fairness, this is a this is thought about differently in Europe than it is in the United States. I spent a lot of time in Europe. Here's what a if you come to a VC through a banker in the United States, you are seen as weak. Mm -hmm. It means that you're not good enough at what you do to make your own case and to get to people. Everybody believes if you're good, you'll figure out a way to get in. In Europe, people hire bankers all the time. I don't understand it. Mm -hmm. They'll even hire them for the Series A. I had a guy reach out. I chased down a business once in Europe. I really wanted to find out about funding. I got to him and he's like, well, we're about to raise, but we want to hire a banker. I'm like, please don't hire a banker. Pitch me first. You don't need to go through a banker. He refused, waited. I couldn't get anybody to pay attention. The banker's going to take their scrape. Screw that. I mean, I'm not opposed to bankers. I have friends that are bankers, but I'm not going to put $10 million into your business as a traditional you know, VC and have you give $600,000 or a million of it to some banker. 
Now, my, I know that I'm not paying it, but you are, and it's with money I gave you. Not interested. So when you pitch a USBC through a banker, you're immediately in a negative. Okay, don't do it. Now, mm -hmm. that is, no, and there are no, and consultants, give me a break. Uh, there, you know, if somebody's telling you, look, you can bring on advisors. Mm -hmm. I sometimes, um, we have a certain ownership threshold we want, and sometimes we get to a deal too late and we can't get what we want by putting in the cash. So sometimes we'll say to the entrepreneur, hey, if we can be valuable to you, which we believe we can, and we'll introduce you to people to tell you that that's the case, and you can decide, then maybe the way to bridge the gap between what I want to own and what you're able to sell me is to have some advisor shares as well, because I will help you raise the rent. So yeah, I mean, I there's a very rich history of advisors that get equity in your company in exchange for helping you grow the business. And sometimes that includes getting you to the VCs that can fund you. But I mean, you know, maybe one out of 50 of these people that say they are consultants that can help you raise money are legit. But for the most part, like, man, it's just, I, I, <laughs> I don't know any of them. I, you know, in fairness, it's funny because sometimes I think to myself, Ben, you could do a lot better just helping people raise money and taking a piece of the action. I probably should if people are actually getting that done. Like I had a deal where I helped somebody raise $29 million on hundred when they thought they'd raise 10 on 40. And what did I get? I got abuse for, you know, the price of my shares and that I should pay more. I got, I got no reward other than I'm happy for my entrepreneur. If I was a banker, I would have gotten 6% of the deal. So where's my 6% of the $29 million I helped raise? It was my introduction, my behind the scenes negotiation with the different people involved. I mean, if I can get 6% of that, geez, I, maybe I should do that for a living. But that is not the pattern you see. Silicon Valley is a pay it forward environment where people refer to things. They want to see everybody succeed. And, and there's not really, I, I'm not saying every one of these folks is bad. I just haven't seen the ones that are good yet. So I would not do that. Now, in fairness, if you're coming from another country, and you don't know this ecosystem, you probably need a guide. Now, hopefully that guide is an advisor where you're giving between 20 bips and 2% of the company, depending on how early you are, and they know the people and they can get you to them. But that is different than some, you know, like fee-based consultant. Um, and, you know, there are organizations that explicitly are about bringing companies over. There's a group called Upwest Labs that does this in Israel. They partner with the very best entrepreneurs. They bring them here. They give them incremental training and they introduce them forward. You know, they're incubators and accelerators. They put in some money and take a big chunk of extra, mainly because they can get you to investors when the time comes. We advocate for the fact that we can get you in front of the right investors at the right time. We do it just to win the deal, right? Mm -hmm. Like you said, $29 million, and I got no incremental gain from that. I got to mark up my position. So, yeah, I'm very, very negative on consultants, bankers, and anybody that gets in. And here's the other thing. I don't want anybody in the way of my relationship with an entrepreneur. Right. Don't send your VP biz dev to do the job. Send the founder and CEO. I need to know the person I'm funding and the person I'm funding is the alpha that leads the company, period. OK, I don't need somebody in the middle chit chat with me about why this is or isn't a great opportunity. I mean, universally, when a banker sends me a pitch, I'm like, I'm sorry, that's not how I work. Unsubscribe. Mm, got it. Yeah. Valuable. Yeah. Uh, I can't avoid wait one question. You know, I can see a lot of books on your background. Can you tell uh, which books uh, do you like to read and why these books can help you? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. Entrepreneurs often ask me what they should read, and I say either nothing or everything. 
nothing mm-hmm. because you just don't have any time. Like, don't read TechCrunch all the time. Don't get, you know, don't feel bad because somebody raised a bigger round at a better price. But, you know, expand your mind constantly if you have the time. These books cover literally every topic. There's hard science, science fiction, there's history, there's classics, there's option trading, there's uh, more hard science, science fiction. There's a great modern classicist. Uh, I mean, right now I'm reading Frank Slootman's new book, Amp It Up, which I think is great. Um, there's another book I thought was really, really good called The Culture Code. I think that's by Dan Coyle. There's mm-hmm. a book called Predictably Irrational, which is about pop sort of human psychology, but is basically a really great book on pricing for how to think about pricing your product. And then, you know, like 20 years ago when I read Snow Crash, that was world changing to me. Neil Stevenson, you should definitely read that if you haven't read it yet. Mm-hmm. That's funny. My brother-in-law, who's a high net worth banker, I went to his house about six months ago and he had Snow Crash on the well, and I was like, why are you reading Snow Crash? Like, you're literally the most classic, boring white guy that's in banking that's never read science fiction in your life. He's like, oh, I want to understand the metaverse. I was like, well, you're about 23 years late, but good for you, man. So better late than never, I guess. Um, and Snow Crash is probably one of the most seminal books in science fiction that exists when it comes to the, the dorks like me and nerds that have built this world. Diamond Age by Neil Stevenson is also quite good. So, you know, it's um, I do like to read. I seldom have as much time as I'd like. I try not to buy Wi-Fi on planes. That's a chance to read. I also have plenty of books on my Kindle, but I like actual books. And I've read not every book here, like these leather bounds are, are more for aesthetic. They were inherited from my father-in-law, uh-huh. but I've read all the other <laughs> stuff. And, uh, you know, like I'm just as likely to read uh, books like Collapse by Gerard, um, Jared Diamond about sort of how uh, successful cultures have imploded uh, you know, just like or Cadillac Desert about the water situation. You know, I, I think there's a, a value in constantly expanding your mind. And you do that by constantly exposing yourself to new ideas and new thoughts. And there's great wisdom that's been created over basically all of human history and put into words. Uh, Thoreau, mm-hmm. right? Socrates, Plato. I mean, there's great stuff. This stuff goes back to basically before words were used in, in written form. Uh, I think it was Socrates protested against the written word. He believed the written word would make us lazy by having words, putting put down words on paper would mean people had to remember less. There's great data that people do remember far less now, but obviously the written word empowered lots of other things. So it's all good. You give something up, but you get a hundred times more. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. Uh, I have the question about uh, extra money. For example, if some companies uh, have cash and uh, they want to invest this cash, can you Tell them uh, which way is better to do it. Because, you know, for example, uh, I failed many times with crypto, with uh, some, uh, uh, I don't know, m- many, many different things. Can you tell uh, if you have no experience with investing but have extra money, uh, how to find the right way to invest them? How an individual would invest the extra Yeah, capital? or company. Yeah. Or, well, or I mean, that is that question is extremely hard to answer because it's case dependent. Right. Mm-hmm. I'll, give you a, I'll tell you an answer in a different way. When I got liquidity. So I had taken a company public and I took it private. And all of a sudden, having grown up in an upper middle class family with nothing special, just my, my parents were awesome, paid for my mm-hmm. college. You know, I never wanted for anything, but I didn't have, you know, uh, you know, money to buy a Porsche or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. All of a sudden I had this money. And I was like, huh, what am I going to do with it? Well, I'll tell you one thing. When it takes 25 years to make your money, you get pretty protective of it. So I wanted to be pretty traditional and conservative. But 
The way I got started as an early stage seed investor was I took the job to run the institutional platform to start one of the first seed investing organizations in the world in 2007. And I negotiated the right to invest my own capital alongside. And what I did was I said to myself, what amount of my net worth am I able to lose without it being damaging? And I decided mm -hmm. I could lose 10% of my net worth. So I took 10% of my net worth and I put it into a separate account. And I said, that is the money I will use for seed investing. Mm -hmm. These days, things like AngelList make that possible for anybody. If you wanted, you could take, here's the thing. If you are going to invest, invest in startups, the first thing you should know, these are my opinions alone, spray and pray does not work. Okay. There have been like, I know one guy that's made money from spray and pray. And the guy you think it is, isn't. The guy you think made money doing spray and pray had 300 investments and only four returned capital. And out of that amazing fund, I think he made like 1.4x. So the problem is spray and pray, your bullets are not allowed to hit the very best companies. You're not going to get Google. You're not going to get Facebook. So you need to have a point of view. You need to be, you know, you need to have a thesis on how you're going to invest. You need to choose. Mm -hmm. Very few people have succeeded by just throwing darts. Secondly, you need to understand this is risk capital and you could lose 100% of it. The other side of ups, okay, Facebook, everybody knows. How many people here know a company called Friendster? Friendster mm -hmm. was the same trajectory as Facebook, as exciting, more exciting, before Facebook, and now it's worth zero. So guess what? You might get Facebook or you might get a zero. Zero is always an opportunity in early stage investing. Mm -hmm. You need to be able to lose the money and keep going, okay? You cannot put out money that will, it will impact your ability to survive. Lastly, very long time horizons. I used to say it was a seven to 10 year journey. These days, it's more like a 10 to 15 year journey. You can have companies that are worth a lot more than you paid for them, but they're probably not liquid, which means you're not getting any cash, which means you could have all kinds of markups. I'll tell you what markups don't buy food. You know what else they don't mm -hmm. pay for mortgages. OK, so you have in a company that used to be worth a dollar and is now worth 50. Wow. 50 X. But you got to buy groceries. Well, good luck. Now, there are more secondary platforms to trade shares, often sold at a discount, but you know, what it is on paper is very different than what you have in cash. So understand that liquidity is a big issue. It's going to take a long time. It's risk capital. When I pitch my own fund to people, I have a 14 year track record that I am told is sort of top 1% performance, 14 X fund, five and a half X fund. You know, it's been great, but I tell everybody it's risk capital. You could lose your money and it's going to be 10 years before you see it back. Don't misunderstand mm -hmm. that. And don't like give it lip service because one day you'll need some money and you'll realize it's not there. And that's a big, big problem. So you've got to match the risk of what your investments look like, both with the return you need and your place in life and your age, right? You can afford to take more risk when you're young, not because you have to eat less or pay less mortgage, but maybe you don't own a house yet. Maybe you don't have a family. Maybe you don't have kids in school that are costing you a tuition, right? And if it all goes horribly wrong, maybe you can still move in with your parents and start over again. But I'll tell you, you're married with two kids with a mortgage and two kids in private school. You do not want to screw up so that all of a sudden you got to tell your wife or husband why, mm -hmm. oops, 
Kids got to go to public school now. I'm not, you know, by the way, public school is great. I'm just saying, you know, you got to make sure this is discretionary money, not prime money. And so you did lead with extra money and that's fair. I don't trade crypto. I think it's a speculator's game. I'm an investor. I'm not a speculator. Mm -hmm. they are different approaches. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm just not, I mean, I look, I made my first blockchain investment in 2014. If I had invested in crypto, then I would have made a butt ton of money. But it's not what I'm good at. I am not mm -hmm. a speculator. I've never traded. I mean, I've traded currencies or gold like once. Here's the thing about speculation. Gold, mm, currencies, uh, futures, crypto. It's awesome while it's working. And it's disastrous when it doesn't. Right. You can make a lot of money until you lose all of it and more. And uh, you better understand those risks. You need to go into any investment open eyed, knowing what the other side of the coin is. Zero is what I'm accustomed to. Negative is not. You know, you're doing futures on options and all of a sudden you get margin called out and you might actually have to put in more money than you would. You know, you made a dollar. You could have made a dollar, but now you got to pay three. Woof. Not good. I like venture. You can only lose a dollar, but you can make a thousand times. Mm -hmm. Love it. Yeah, well explained. Uh, I have the last question about. Oh, by the way, uh, the public markets are in such disarray. If you have a long-term belief in companies, now's a good time to buy them. I think mm -hmm. because the thing is, it's not about trading. Can you mm -hmm. buy and hold? If you think I don't know, Snowflake is an awesome company. Netflix, Salesforce, they're down big time. Now they'll probably get go down more. I don't know, but mm -hmm. it's all naked puts beneath them. But net net, as long as you've got a three, five, or ten-year time horizon, so what? It's great to buy great companies when they're depressed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And here's the last point. They're liquid. Mm -hmm. Even if you lose money, at least you can get that money. You have a company that does a down round in your private portfolio. Nobody's offering to buy it from you, even at that price. So at least with public stocks, you know that when, hit, when it comes to it, if you need money, you can at least get it, even if it's at a suboptimal price. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's okay. That's okay. Love it. Uh, can you tell how to learn more about investing today? If someone wanna be an expert like you to uh, jump on this field, lead them in the right direction. I mean, that's that's also quite hard. I mean, obviously you can read a lot, maybe something like Seeking Alpha for old fashioned stuff or even Warren Buffett for like, it's good to start with classics. Like I think my son, when he went off to college, I gave him uh, um, The Intelligent Investor, which is Warren Buffett's favorite book. But that's sort of to understand baseline, old-fashioned thinking about investing. It's not really necessarily as informative about current day, but it's smart stuff to understand and know. The thing is, there's a, one of my favorite sayings is, good judgment comes from experience. But experience comes from bad judgment. There's no substitute <laughs> for doing in order to learn. Now, maybe you can create a synthetic fake portfolio. Let's say you want to play in the public markets. Nothing wrong with like doing all the research, doing all the work, and then pretending you bought it by creating a spreadsheet of what you would have done and tracking it. Also, nothing wrong with, let's say you have $100,000 to invest. Maybe you want to start by taking $1,000. I mean, the nice thing with Robinhood and even the free trading at Schwab, you can buy small amounts of stock in companies these days. You can buy fractional shares. So you can see how it would go. Now, here's the problem for people that have been trading for the last five years. Everybody's a genius in a bull market, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> we are in the longest up market that has ever existed on the planet with one exception, which is, I think, Australia. Okay. That doesn't mean you made the right decisions. 
As one of my friends and general partner at another firm, I was a GP, said once, the end result does not determine whether you made the right decision or not. Luck does play a factor. Let's say you won the lottery. Did that mean you made the right decision to play the lottery? The lottery is a bad bet. It's a horrible statistical bet, but you won. Somebody had to. Well, guess what? You still made a stupid decision to play it in the first place, but you're the one person out of a billion that made money doing it. So, you know, it's like making money right now or making money in the last five years, I don't think tells you if you were any good at your job. Um, it's just, you know, like as one person we were talking said around venture, it's like it's not about the one hit. It's about the body of work. Have you been able to consistently do X, Y, or Z? I look at things like what percentage of my company didn't make money? What percentage of my company did raise Series A from a tier one firm? And those numbers are better for me than for most. So I think that indicates that I've learned something. Um, I apply what I learned as an entrepreneur to picking the entrepreneurs I fund. I spent 25 years as an entrepreneur. You're not going to pretend your way through me, whether you're going to be a good entrepreneur or not, right? Like, I don't have any illusions about what it's going to take. Entrepreneurship is the hardest job in the world if you're not a first responder. If you're a soldier or a fireman, those are harder jobs. You're putting your life at risk, okay? But in a job that happens in an office, library, or cubicle, nothing harder than being an entrepreneur. Waking up every morning, responsible for all your people, all alone, nobody to talk to. Things go wrong constantly. You get hit in the face with a virtual sledgehammer nonstop. I can tell you a hundred stories of how things went horribly wrong, okay? You got to be able to push through. I got to believe that about you. That's why my fund is named Tenacity. Tenacity is the only true secret to entrepreneurial success. Brilliance is assumed, or I wouldn't have funded you. A great idea is assumed, or I wouldn't have funded you. And a huge market is assumed, or I wouldn't have funded you. I always say I need five things to make an investment. People, 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 a great idea, and a huge market if it works. Okay, <laughs> I funded that before, but the person didn't have the tenacity to drive through the hard times, and they failed because they gave up. Okay, Not interested in that. So clearly, somebody did trick them, or <laughs> I didn't understand them well enough, or they didn't understand themselves. I don't know. But... I drifted off on a tangent. I know it wasn't explicit to the question. Um, so learning comes from a lot of pain. I mean, you look, the more pain you suffer, you know, I was, my son was uh, complaining about something. Uh, and I said, hey, hard lives make strong people. It's life. <laughs> I, like, yeah. you know, easy lives make soft people. Soft people don't survive the zombie apocalypse. I'm using that metaphorically, obviously, but like, you know, I want my kids to be strong. I want my entrepreneurs to be strong. I want, I want me to be strong. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, Ben, it's a big pleasure, you know, to learn from you, to, to learn all these insights. Tell our audience how they can reach out to you, learn more about you, follow you. Sorry, you, uh, you broke up there. Can you say that again? Uh, yeah. Uh, tell our audience how they can reach out to you, learn more about you, follow you. Yeah, so the, there's multiple ways. The first one I just put in the, you already have it in the chat. Yeah, yeah. And that is if you have a concept you want to pitch me, then you use www.pitch-ben.com. Anybody can pitch me and I promise them a response. It might not be quick, but it will happen. Secondly, follow me on Twitter, at mm -hmm. bnarison. I'm constantly throwing out things I think are interesting. Look, the bottom line is I use Twitter for myself. I use it as a notepad for things I don't want to remember later. And if other people want to see what I have to keep in my notepad, more power to them. I tweet out articles I find interesting, but I tweet out, you know, we fostered 150 dogs. So if you want to see mm -hmm. pictures of puppies, I got them on my Twitter. Um, and then lastly, feel free to connect me on LinkedIn. I connect, I accept all connections. 
you can certainly send me an email there if you choose. Like I said, precise, right? Not long. Who are you? What are you doing? How are you doing it? Who are you doing it for? And how's it going? Um, all those are, are valid ways to get to me. Okay, guys, you can find all these links uh, to Ben in the description below. Listen us on Apple, Google, Spotify. Thanks again for your time. A big pleasure. You know, a, a lot of valuable insights. Love it. Yeah, you shared something that I need to think a lot about that. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this entire podcast. Please rank your experience in Apple, Spotify, Google, or any other platforms that you may use. Also, please share your ranking mark on chat at seotools.tv to get a special gift. We'll see you soon on other valuable audio podcasts.